1: Welcome to A Million Other Choices, I am, as always, your host, Kim. Sometimes murders happen to little girls. It's a sad fact, and one that we are all pretty familiar with in this country, and just about any country that has little girls. We want for them to live and be innocent little peanuts forever, and when they are murdered, we get mad as hell and fight for justice and changes to the law but sometimes little girls die from illness and accidents and we just don't know what to do with all of our pain and our grief. It's hard to see very clearly through grief. When it's the death of a child, the grief can blind us. This is the death of Valen Lynn Johnson. So, before we talk about Little Valen, we have to go back to the shores of Lake Superior in the Bathawanton First Nation of the Ojibwe, a First Nation band in Northern Ontario and home to Lorena Hill. Lorena was a single mom to three young boys and struggled to make ends meet, but always managed to provide food and shelter and love to her family. They moved around a bit from job to job for Lorena and finally settled in Sault Ste. Marie, which rests on the banks of the St. Mary's River west of Sudbury. And if you draw a line across the top of Wisconsin, in an east direction, you will see the Sault Ste. Marie population about 74,000 people. Her oldest son, Paul, known in the family as Polly, and middle son, William, who went by Bill. Now, Bill was very tall for his age and had a stutter and prone to being bullied, so Paul was particularly watchful and protective of him. In the family, Bill was known as a gentle giant standing six foot five and weighing in about 250 pounds, but very soft-spoken. Bill was also partially deaf due to an illness as a baby that led to swelling in the brain. But despite Bill's gentle and soft-spoken nature, both Paul and Bill grew to have a few run-ins with the law. Paul got involved in drugs and sold them, and at 18, Bill was convicted of armed robbery and served a 15-month sentence for that. After his release, he moved in with his brother Paul, who was by this time living with his common-law wife Kim and their three children, Jean, who was about five, Valen, who was four, and little John, who was three. And this was around April of 1993, and Bill at the time was 22. And things went pretty swimmingly other than Kim and Paul's relationship was a bit stormy. But Bill took to the kids and enjoyed hanging out with the family and was often called on to babysit, which was something he never turned down an opportunity to do because he enjoyed spending time with the little ones and their energy and excitement over the simple things in life and the fact that kids never judge you for your past, your appearance, or if you are super tall and partially deaf. Little four-year-old Valen was particularly taken with her Uncle Bill and would seek out his attention and giggle at his jokes. She was a lively little raven-haired lady, and unfortunately, because she was only four, other than telling you about her little button nose and cheeky smile, there isn't a lot more than I can say about her. On Saturday, June twenty-seventh, 1993, Paul and Kim were in a baseball tournament, and so that afternoon Paul played in a game, and then Kim took the kids to a nearby park for a while, and the plan was that Bill would later babysit the kids so that both Kim and Paul could play in one of the evening games. So that night, just after dinner, Kim gave the kids baths before she left, and Bill sat down on the couch with the three kids and watched some cartoons and TV with them. At 7.30, he noticed that Valen had already fallen asleep, so he gave her a little poke and told her to go up to her room and get to bed, which she did. Half an hour later, at 8, he carried three-year-old John up to his room and passed Valen's bedroom, where he saw that she was sleeping on her side with her back to him in her own bed. So he quietly shut the door and put John down for bed. Kim arrived home at 9.30 and was tired after the game, and Bill had said that the kids were all asleep, so she did a bit of laundry and then sat down to watch some TV with Bill before taking a shower and going to bed around 11.30. Around midnight, a couple of Bill's friends popped over and stayed until about 1.30 in the morning before all of them, including Bill, left to go to a party. Paul arrived home around 2 a.m., and he went right up to bed because he had been drinking rather heavily. And then Bill arrived home around 3 a.m. after admittedly having about 10 to 15 beers. So you could say he was pretty sauced. Kim got up the next morning at 7 a.m. and went to Valen's room to get her up and came running down the stairs screaming that Valen was dead in her bed. Her face was purple and there was vomit covering her face that had spread onto the bedsheets. Kim grabbed Valen and hurried down the stairs where Paul tried to revive her with CPR but rigor mortis had already set in and his attempts were fruitless. Kim, Paul, and Bill were shocked, distraught, and horrified that their little angel had died in the night alone because they surmised that she must have choked on her own vomit. Mallon had been running a low-grade fever for a few days, and Bill did say that she was tired and fell asleep early, but they couldn't have known that she was that sick. Paramedics were called and she was rushed to the Sault Ste. Marie Hospital, but it was clearly too late and Valen was deceased. Around 1 p.m. that afternoon, her body was examined by the hospital's pathologist, a Dr. Burendra Rasai, and Dr. Rasai found bruises on little Valen's chest and neck that suggested that she had been asphyxiated by external compression of her airway, either by covering her mouth and nose or by strangulation, or by some kind of compressing of her chest so that she couldn't breathe. And worse, there were bruises on her vagina and the tissue around her anus was stretched, leading him to believe that she had been sexually assaulted prior to her death and that the abuse that she had been suffering had been chronic. He put her time of death between 8 and 10 p.m. the previous night. His opinion was that Valen had been subjected to repeated sexual assaults over a period of time but there wasn't any evidence of very recent sexual abuse as in the night that she had died. Dr. Rossa called in one of his colleagues, Dr. Patricia Zier, who was a pediatric gyne- gynecologist and an expert in child sexual abuse, and she agreed, describing it as the worst case of anal penetration that she had seen. So with that, he let detectives know that he suspected that Valen had died as a result of a homicide. He also had called Dr. Charles Smith of the Toronto Sick Kids Hospital and described for him over the phone what he was seeing, and Dr. Smith agreed with his initial findings and said that he would also consult on the case with him. In 1992, the Ontario Coroner's Office had created a Pediatric Forensic Pathology Unit at the Hospital for Sick Children, and Smith was the appointed director. His job was to investigate suspicious child deaths in all of Ontario. The province of Ontario had seen a string of child sexual murders in the not-so-distant past. In 1983, Sharon Keenan, 9, was abducted in Toronto and found dead 10 days later. The next year, -year 9-year-old Christine Jessup was also abducted from her home in Queensville and sexually assaulted and murdered. In 1986, 11-year-old Alison Parrott was lured to the Varsity Stadium and sexually assaulted and murdered. Andrea Aikinson, age 6, was abducted from her Toronto apartment and sexually assaulted and murdered and stuffed into the storage tank in her building. Kayla Claudetz was only three when in 1991 she was found floating in the Toronto harbour, and we can't forget that in 1991 Leslie Mahaffey and Kirsten French were also abducted, tortured, and murdered by Scarborough's very own serial rapist and murdering team, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. So murder and children seem to be a very tragic pairing of late. But worse than all, of these abductions and murders were the fact that 63% of child murders are committed by family members. So the police marched back to Paul's house to get to the bottom of who had been abusing this child and murdered her in the process. Paul was furious that he had trusted Bill around his kids all the time he was abusing them. Bill being the only one home at the time was suspect number one, and he vehemently denied having anything to do with her death or any abuse, sexual or otherwise, that had been happening to his sweet, innocent little niece who thought the world of her uncle. But the police didn't think the world of Bill. The evidence didn't lie, and Bill was arrested at 6.30 that same night and charged with first degree murder and aggravated sexual assault, infuriating his family, and all the while Bill was saying that he didn't do anything. Bill was offered a plea bargain to serve less time if he pled guilty to manslaughter, but he refused, feeling that they didn't have enough evidence to convict him of any kind of murder. So when the matter went to trial, the evidence was pretty circumstantial, but the evidence from the pathologists was very compelling. Dr. Smith, who had reviewed photographs of Valen's body, determined that she had suffered a sexual assault at or very near the time of her death. Therefore, her death had been related to the sexual assault. Dr. Rasai and Dr. Zier disagreed a bit, stating that there wasn't any evidence of very recent assault, but evidence of long-running chronic abuse. So the defense made the argument to the jury that there was conflicting reports of what had actually killed Valen, that they couldn't definitively prove that it was even a murder. And if the abuse had not happened right at the time of her death, then it was possible that someone else in the house had been the one that had been abusing her, perhaps Paul who was a drinker and known to sometimes be violent when he drank. The prosecution pointed out that Kim had bathed Valen before she left around 6.30 and there was no evidence of bruising at that time, and she noted nothing out of the ordinary. So there was only Bill that could have been responsible, and a murder committed during a sexual assault is automatically first degree. There wasn't a lot of physical evidence, but the prosecution honed in on a semen sample, but that the defense reiterated that the semen sample had been taken from the underwear and track pants that Bill had been wearing that night, and no sample was ever found on or in or around Vallon. After about nine and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found the testimony of the pathologists as the smoking gun and convicted Bill mullins Johnsons of first-degree murder and aggravated sexual assault and Bill was only 24 at the time. Paul severed ties with his brother, as did his children and most of the family. Lorena was the only one that would make the nine-hour drive from her house in Sault Ste. Marie to the Joyceville Institution, just outside of Kingston, to visit him, believing in his innocence. Kim was furious with Lorena, believing she had chosen her son over her grandchildren, and the family was completely torn apart. Child killers don't do very well in prison, so he was a marked man and attempted suicide on a number of occasions. He spent some time in solitary confinement in order to protect him from other inmates, and then moved to Warkworth, north of Edmonton, where sex offenders are housed. He appealed to the Ontario Court of Appeal, but that was dismissed in 1996. However, one judge did state that he would have ordered a new trial because of the lack of physical evidence tying him to the crime, and that only one of the pathologists, Dr. Smith, had seen evidence of very recent anal penetration, where the other two hadn't. And it went to the Supreme Court of Canada, but that appeal was dismissed unanimously in 1998. So in a last-ditch effort for freedom, he started writing Letters to Innocence Canada, Bill didn't really hear anything back from them, but James Lockyer, who's a lawyer for the Innocence Canada, wrote to the Crown Law Office to obtain the tissue samples from Valen's autopsy that they be made available so that he could contact their forensic pathologist, Dr. Bernard Knight. The tissue samples were ordered to be released to them, and Dr. Rassaud notified them that he had sent the samples over to Dr. Charles Smith's office. Dr. Smith had not returned them, so they went to him, and he said that he couldn't find them. He didn't have them. He was looking for them, and other blah blah blah, and basically held everything up for a good year before Dr. Polinen. Polinen was appointed chief forensic pathologist for Ontario, and finally he was able to get his hands on the tissue slide samples. It didn't take Dr. Pullinan very long to figure out that Dr. Smith's findings were completely inaccurate to the point of almost being criminal. It was now 2002 and Bill had spent about a decade in prison as a sex offender and child killer by this time. And both Dr. Polanen and Dr. Knight had determined that there was no evidence whatsoever that Valen had been sexually assaulted at all, let alone murdered, and her death had been due to natural causes but what about the bruises? Those were the result of normal processes following death or were caused by procedures connected to the post-mortem investigation, and the stretching of the anus was due to the natural occurrence of muscle deterioration after death. Dr. Smith was reprimanded for his shoddy work by the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons, but continued to do autopsies. Innocence Canada filed an application for a review of Bill's conviction based on the shoddy expert testimony and the fact that no crime had been committed. On September 7, 2005, Bill was released on bail and into his mother Lorena's waiting arms. She had never believed Bill was capable of sexually abusing a child or anyone and certainly not of murder. On July 6, 2007, the Federal Minister of Justice granted the application and sent the case back to the Ontario Court of Appeal. And the Ontario Court of Appeal that had first denied his appeal now found that, quote, it is now clear that there is no evidence that Valen Johnson was assaulted and murdered and no evidence that William Mullins Johnson was guilty of any crime. Further saying, it is now clear that there is not and never was Any reliable pathological evidence that Valen was sexually assaulted or otherwise abused during her short life, and certainly not on the evening of her death. It is also now clear that there is no evidence to support a finding of homicidal asphyxia, the cause of death pro-offered at trial. While the cause of Valen Johnson's death remains undetermined, there is no evidence to suggest that it was a result of any crime. That Mr. Mullins Johnson was arrested, convicted of first degree murder, and spent 12 years in prison because of flawed pathology evidence is a terrible miscarriage of justice. The fresh evidence shows that the appellate's conviction was the result of a rush to judgment based on flawed scientific opinion. With the entering of an acquittal, the appellate's legal innocence has been reestablished. Um, and there's actually not, in Canadian law, two different kinds of acquittals. Like you can't, on one hand, be have the Crown having failed to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt, that kind of acquittal. And then those that are accused have later been shown to be factually innocent. So they said, quote, it is profoundly regrettable that as a result of what has been shown to be flawed pathological evidence, Mr. Mullins Johnson was wrongfully convicted and has spent such a very long time in jail. We can only hope that these words, these reasons for judgment, and the deep apology expressed by Ms. Fairburn on behalf of the Ministry of the Attorney General will provide solace to Mr. Mullins Johnson, to his mother, and to everyone who has been so terribly injured by these events. So his conviction was overturned and he was acquitted on October 15th, 2007. And on October 20th, 2010, Chris Bentley, who is the attorney general of Ontario, awarded him $4.25 million in compensation for his wrongful conviction with an apology, saying on behalf of the government of Ontario, I offer my deepest and most sincere apologies to Bullens Johnson and his family for the miscarriage of justice that occurred and the pain that they had to endure. Mullins Johnson has been working hard to rebuild his life, and we wish him well as he continues that process. By 2005, Innocence Canada was wary of any of Dr. Charles Smith's cases that he had testified for the crown on and wrote to the chief coroner for Ontario asking for an inquiry into his work. A review of 44 of Dr. Smith's autopsies was ordered, 13 of which had led to convictions, and there were issues found in 20 of them. Uh, I will go through a few of the major ones near the end of this episode. Basically, the review discovered that Dr. Smith didn't have any training in forensic pathology and was a pediatric pathologist and made a terrible expert witness because he was arrogant and provided unbalanced or emotive testimony, which tended to invite inappropriate and adverse conclusions. He had openly said that he, quote, had a thing against people who hurt children, and um, other people had said of him that he was on a crusade and acted more like a prosecutor than a pathologist. He resigned from the Sick Children's Hospital in July of 2005 and moved to the Saskatoon Hospital in Saskatchewan. However, he failed to mention to his new employers that he was under investigation for misconduct in Ontario. So... In December 2005, he was dismissed, and on February 1st, 2011, he was stripped of his license during a hearing by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, who examined him, calling his conduct disgraceful. Uh, Bill moved to Toronto after his release. Valen's siblings still believe that he was a murderer, and they don't speak to him, although that might have changed since 2013, when they were last interviewed. Paul accepts that Bill is innocent, but he just doesn't know how to process everything. Being told your brother is a monster by so-called experts, only to later be told that Valen died of natural causes is a bitter pill to swallow, I would imagine, and could mess with your emotions and trust issues. Bill had a girlfriend for a while, but he developed a bit of a drug problem dealing with freedom after 12 years, suspicion hanging over him, being forced on him to be a spokesperson for the wrongfully convicted. It was just really too much for him to handle. Um, I believe he is sober now, though. In 2012, Innocence Canada presented Lorena with an award in recognition of her courage, dedication, and sacrifice helping Bill to clear his name. She, however, died in 2020. In October of 2018, both David Milgard and Bill spoke to the University of Guelph, and Bill told a packed crowd, the system needs to change and one of the most effective ways to educate the next generation coming up. It's just too easy for everyone, not just the lawyers, the jury, to fall into this idea just because someone's been charged. They must be guilty. Now, being wrongfully convicted for a crime that I didn't commit is on my personal list of things to be neurotic about. So I'm going to share some stats with you about it here in Canada. More than one-third of wrongful convictions involved crimes that never occurred. while 18% were the result of guilty pleas. Women accounted for 40% of guilty plea wrongful convictions. While racialized, primarily Indigenous, defendants accounted for nearly half and 14% involved those with mental health Or cognitive challenges. Now, given the low probability of a successful appeal, the only hope that these individuals have is to seek the aid of organizations like Innocence Canada. Now, there is hope. There's a Bill C 40 that's hoping to pass. It's the Miscarriage of Justice Review Commission Act, and it will create an independent commission to review appeals for wrongful convictions so that applicants don't have to submit their applications directly into the system that put them away. However, as of the time that I'm writing this episode it doesn't appear to have passed. Now, for some of the other convictions that Dr. Charles Smith was involved in. Maureen Laidley was charged with killing her boyfriend's 3-year-old son Tyrell Salmon. In 1998, Maureen's account was that Tyrell jumped off the couch, slipped and stuck his struck his head on a marble coffee table. Smith said no way, but her charges were stayed because other experts said that his injuries were entirely consistent with her account. Sherry Sherritt, she found her four-month-old son not breathing in his crib on January 23rd, 1996. He was rushed to hospital but died. Uh, she was told to take a plea deal to infanticide, which she did, since Dr. Smith was the one that was set to testify that Joshua had a skull fracture and had been smothered. Her older child was removed by CPS. He was later exhumed and found no such evidence. He had confused the normal gap in the baby's skull plate, that soft spot for a fracture. Sherry was exonerated, but not until after she had served her full sentence. Brenda Wabi, she was charged with beating her two-year-old daughter Jenna to death on January 22, 1997, on the basis of Smith's professional opinion as to what time the injuries were inflicted. Anthony Kapoorwadu and Angela Vino. Anthony and Angela were both charged in 1997 with murdering their infant daughter. Uh, so Smith took more than seven months to prepare his initial autopsy report, and the charges were ultimately thrown out by a judge for violating the constitutional right to a timely trial. Louise Reynolds, she was a 28-year-old single mother living in Kingston, Ontario, was charged with second-degree murder for having killed her 7-year-old daughter Sharon in 1997 by stabbing her more than 80 times with a pair of scissors. The charges were later dropped after numerous experts, including crown witnesses, disagreed with Dr. Smith and agreed that a powerful dog had mauled the girl, and there was a pitbull present in the house at the time, and by then Reynolds had already spent 22 months in custody. Dinesh Kumar, he was a 26-year-old Punjabi immigrant who was charged with second-degree murder In 1992, after the death of his infant son, he pled guilty to criminal negligence causing death and was sentenced to 90 days in jail. He was acquitted by the Ontario Court of Appeal on January 20th, 2011. There's actually no details in that case on what Dr. Smith got wrong. Tammy Marquardet was convicted in Ontario in 1995 for killing her two-year-old son who had epilepsy. Her conviction was based on Testimony from Dr. Smith that said that the boy had been strangled and smothered, and she was sentenced to life in prison, and her two other children were taken from her and put up for adoption. Tammy's conviction was set aside in February tenth, two thousand eleven by the Ontario Court of Appeal. The prosecutors agreed that her trial had been faulty because of Dr. Smith's unreliable testimony. Uh, and the murder charges were later withdrawn. Maria Shepard, she pled guilty in 1992 to the death the year before of her stepdaughter, Cassandra Shepherd. She was sentenced to two years less a day for manslaughter, and the Ontario Court of Appeal allowed her to appeal that initial conviction, and in February 2016, the Crown agreed that her guilty plea and conviction should have, have been struck out uh, and she should actually be acquitted. And again, this all happened after she had served her sentence. And again, I'm not sure what exactly Dr. Sh- Dr. Smith had gotten wrong in that case. And that, my friends, with the death of Valen Johnson and the wrongful conviction of her favorite uncle, William Mullins Johnson. I don't actually like doing wrongful conviction cases as a true crime podcaster, for one, there should be a crime. And secondly, it's tough to sit here and tell a story based on pathologists and other experts that tell this tale of evil, knowing that it could, I could be talking out of my butt if it turns out later that all those experts were wrong. But anyways, I'll be back again next week, taking a whirl at another case that is believed to be a crime with a rightful conviction, one would hope. And as always, thank you so much for listening.